Radical Truth is a podcast produced by TBLI Group and hosted by Robert Wittgenstein. TBLI is making the financial system work for all. Our podcasts cover the wide range of ESG and impact investing topics. What it is, why is it booming, is it really helping, is impact regenerative in nature? How will climate change impact investments? There will be regular interviews with thought leaders, some known, some not known, but all brilliant, and we will have engaging conversations with all of them. Can we create an economy based upon well-being? Let's make the financial system work for all. This is Radical Truth. Business can be one of the most effective forms of activism. Business can be one of the most expressive forms of art. Dr. Melanie Reback, a successful social entrepreneur and professional hacker, will talk about nonprofit businesses, post-growth thought, and alternatives to the Silicon Valley model. This is Radical Truth. Welcome from our studio in Amsterdam, and we're incredibly honored to have Dr. Melanie Reback a superstar whose, whose business is basically hacking into banks, uh, has a huge organization. I was really very impressed. Um, if you want to introduce yourself, just type in the chat to the right. If you have a question, put that in there too. Melanie will give a short introduction as to who she is and what she does, and particularly about alternatives to the Silicon Valley uh, business model, which we always hear about as the only way for success. Melanie. Thank you very much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much also uh, for inviting me. Um, yeah, sorry also for being uh, being uh, a minute or two late. Uh, I just had a, um, a situation that I was uh, busy resolving. But uh, I am done with that now, and I'm ha- really very grateful uh, to be here to speak with all of you. So I'm here to talk today about uh, the Silicon Valley model, what some of the problems are with it, and uh, ways in which we can do things better. So from what I understand uh, from many of you, you're interested in uh, impact investment. And uh, so many of you, I guess, uh, are also already uh, involved with doing things uh, for a better world. What I can tell you about myself is that I am the CEO and co-founder of Radically Open Security, which is a uh, a six-and-a-half-year-old social enterprise in the computer security consultancy space. Um, We have uh, roughly uh, 40 people uh, that are working for us. Uh, We have over... 100 customers, and we also have won uh, quite a few different awards. Um, 50th Most Innovative SME in the Netherlands, uh, CIO Magazine called me the most innovative IT leader of the Netherlands, and also the uh, European Commission called me one of the nine most innovative women in the European Union uh, with their EU Women Innovation Prize. So uh, we've had a lot of successes uh, for our uh, both our business model as well as also for the business itself that we're running. Um, So we are a company of ethical hackers 
as uh, as uh, Robert pointed out. Uh, some of our customers, you know, that we do hacking for include uh, Google, uh, Mozilla, uh, the Open Tech Fund in the United States, but we also are working with the European Commission. Uh, we have just, uh, we actually just hit the news about uh, three weeks ago, actually on the first page of uh, the online papers, uh, for a penetration test that we did on the Corona Melder, which is the COVID-19 contact tracing app uh, mm -hmm. in the Netherlands. Uh, we've also uh, done uh, auditing, security auditing on uh, uh, for the European Commission of COVID-19 contact tracing apps, uh, including uh, Protogo in Poland, Immuni in Italy, Trace Together in Singapore, and also we also via the European Commission are currently doing testing on uh, the Google Apple exposure notification framework as well as the uh, um, interoperability uh, API for the European Union. So we're doing some really high profile uh, jobs uh, with our security company. And you know, uh, beyond the big uh, corporations and national customers, uh, we also uh, you know, really serve a whole lot of different markets, including the not-for-profit market. So as much as we work with uh, really large companies, we also do not-for-profit work at uh, a co on cost price basis for uh, NGOs, nonprofits, and civil society. Um, just quite simply because a lot of uh, NGOs or so small civil society groups, they come to us and they have the scariest attacker models and they have almost no budget. <laughs> so, I mean, literally like some of these like little free speech group in Iran, I mean, they have no budget, but they literally have national governments after them. So, you know, in a sense, it's kind of like, uh, you know, we use the big commercial customers, you know, to get the flywheel spinning. But then once the wheel is spinning, then we can use that engine to also service the little guys, <laughs> you know, and also uh, basically on a, on a zero margin basis. Another thing uh, beyond, uh, you know, being a social enterprise, we go a little bit further in that uh, we also donate all of our profits to charity. I know that sounds weird, like you're thinking all your profits, how do you keep your doors open? <laughs> um, here's the story. We are registered as something called a uh, fiscal fundraising institution. In Dutch, it's called a fiscal fundraising instelling. What this is, is it is a archaic uh, tax construction from the Dutch church. So what this means is that uh, churches sometimes want to do commercial spinoffs. Uh, those spinoffs then raise money in some way, shape or form, and then that money goes with a tax benefit back to the church again. A famous example of this in the Netherlands is the language institute called uh, Regina Chaley, otherwise known as the Nuns of Fifth. Uh, so basically the nuns started the Language Institute. The Language Institute is independently operating, pretty good quality. Uh, it's where our queen in the Netherlands learned her Dutch. And then the profits go in full back to the nuns again. That's how this, uh, this works. So we decided, well, we can do the same thing. We're going to make our commercial spinoff a security consultancy company, and we are going to make our church the NLNet Foundation. And the Enelnet Foundation is a Dutch foundation. It's about 20 years old. And they uh, are basically, they, they give subsidy to different organizations, including, um, you know, open source, digital rights initiatives, thing, you know, and basically anything for a better internet. So projects like GNU, uh, the EFF, Tor, Jitsi, DNSSEC, 
WireGuard, <laughs> you know, a lot of really well-known projects that, you know, make the world better. This is the kind of thing that the NLNet Foundation supports. So what this means is that 90% of our profits go to the NLNet Foundation. The last 10% that we don't donate is our cash flow buffer, because, of course, we need a cash flow buffer to run a business, you know. Um, and, you know, and, and basically this works. <laughs> um, you know, when I talk about profits, uh, I talk about the money that we have left over after everyone has been paid. So basically, I mean, look, I'm running a business here. Uh, in fact, I'm running quite a active, <laughs> you know, a security company with 40 people. So, you know, we receive a lot of money from our customers. We also pay quite a bit of money uh, to our pen testers and other security staff and other kinds of staff. Um, and then we, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of the, uh, you know, the money that we bring in minus the money that we, uh, pay out that we consider to be our profits out of, you know, also, uh, I can reinvest, you know, uh, you know, in, into my company. So we use that to do things like, uh, build automation, create software, um, you know, um, invest in processes and building yeah. Basically, all of the necessary things that we need to uh, actually get a running company. Uh, and basically, the, the money that we donate is basically sort of what would otherwise, I guess, be dividended out of a company. It's basically the, the money that we can afford to miss. So that's basically what I mean when I, uh, when I say profits. But of course, uh, you know, the word profit in and of itself is anyhow really confusing because, you know, Trying to prototype a quote unquote not for profit company, which is essentially what we're trying to do, um, you know, people get really confused because as soon as you say not for profit company, they're like, what? You don't have customers who work for free. You know, what, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, and there's, you know, the difficulty really comes uh, in the fact that the word profit is ambiguous. So the word profit actually has a double meaning. One meaning of the word profit is, uh, essentially margin on turnover. So basically it's that amount that I can reinvest into the actual, you know, building of my company. The second meaning of the word profit is extraction. <laughs> and that's basically the amount that is sort of unnaturally pulled out of a company to go to shareholders, uh, investors, uh, quite simply the 1%. <laughs> um, that also is considered to be profit. But the problem is that because both meanings are embedded into the same word, you know, it, it completely confuses us. Because if somebody says, well, of course my company needs to be profitable, you know, it, it sounds logical. But, you know, the question I then have is, okay, but what meaning are you talking about of the word profit? Because the margin on turnover, yes, that's completely essential to run a business. But extraction, you know, not only is that not necessary, <laughs> but in fact, it's actually harmful. Uh, it's detrimental to a company because anything that pulls financial value out of a company is going to make it less uh, competitive on the market, quite simply. Now, I thought, you know, when I first started this, that uh, I was, you know, being original with these ideas. Turns out uh, much smarter people uh, beat me to it. Um, I'm sure that all of you are familiar with an economist whose name is Mohammed Yunus. Uh, and he, so he's a Nobel Prize winning uh, Bangladeshi economist who invented microfinance. And he also started something called the Grameen Bank. Um, and he also wrote some really good books, including Imagine a World Without Poverty and Building Social Business. So 
Eunice uh, created this concept called social business. And the way in which he defines it, he says, and I quote, that uh, social business is no dividend companies for solving human problems. So the world jumped on Eunice's ideas and they said solving human problems, yes, but no dividend, eh, you know, that doesn't quite work for us, you know? And thus evolved the social enterprise ecosystem that involves such things as impact investors and selling your B corporation to Unilever. Um, you know, I understand right now that I'm talking to basically a conference full of impact investors. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I'm not uh, basically, uh, you know, saying this uh, sort of to attack anyone, because I think that everybody who is in the impact, uh, in, you know, impact ecosystem has very good intentions. But the problem is that the whole Silicon Valley ethic has really infiltrated uh, the social enterprise ecosystem, I think, without our even realizing it. Because if you think about the double meaning of the, that with the word profit, I mean, this is the system. You know, we like to talk about the system. <laughs> but actually, when you think, consider such double meanings, the fact that people get confused because you can't separate out in your head extraction from, from, from margin on turnover that's actually needed to run a business. You know, this is exactly that system. That's, that's staring it straight in the face. You know, and it's built into our semantics. You know, that this ideology is built into the most pure of business concepts. The confusion in the word profit also makes anything that's not for profit confusing. <laughs> because as soon as you start talking about things that are not for profit, like NGOs, that, then the natural assumption is, oh, but uh, we're not allowed to have margin on turnover. <laughs> you know, same thing. <laughs> the problem is the extraction. The problem is not that they're not allowed to have revenue or that they're not allowed to have a sustainable business model. <laughs> I mean, any NGO needs to be able to have some kind of a sustainable uh, way of uh, financially supporting its uh, you know, it's, it's, it's future of its activism, you know, if uh, NGOs are not financially viable in the long run. I mean, the problem really with NGOs is that uh, they are susceptible to something that is called uh, the subsidy trap. So I'm sure that uh, many of you are familiar with the concept of the poverty trap. So the poverty trap, so basically if, if you have a poor person, and then they're on welfare. And then the problem is that the moment that uh, this poor person wants to pull themselves out of poverty, they're going to, you know, they're going to do something like get a job or perhaps start a business, you know, anything like that. Uh, however, the problem is that the moment that they start a business or get a job, they this income disqualifies, disqualifies them for, from getting their, um, you know, their, their welfare check. So they basically wind up falling into this rock in a hard place that it's sort of like, you know, you're, 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 you're darned if you do, you're darned if you don't, um, you know, and uh, they really need to be able to earn a substantial amount to really be able to pull themselves out of this poverty trap. Now, it turns out that uh, the subsidy trap is exactly the same thing. <laughs> so you've got these uh, NGOs and they receive subsidies uh, or donations uh, from third parties. Now. Oftentimes, uh, you know, if these, you know, the problem is in the current world and, you know, the, the, the last four years, most certainly, I mean, we, there's been this spread of populist politicians and it's not just in the States, but it's in Europe. It's all over the place. It's all over the world. And, uh, you know, the, the problem is these subsidies uh, are drying up. 
So NGOs are realizing that, you know, we can't count on subsidies like we used to, you know, and we also can't count on donations like we used to. So they're realizing that we need to start, you know, ha having other more sustainable uh, income streams. However, the moment that uh, an NGO decides to do something like spin up a company to basically help produce some revenue to help keep the uh, NGO alive, uh, this NGO is at risk of losing their charitable status. You know, and the problem is they need this charitable status uh, to be able to have donations be tax exempt. So this is not a small deal. <laughs> so, so this is sort of the problem. The moment that an NGO starts moving towards a sustainable business model, <laughs> then the government basically or whoever or, or, or whatever, whoever's giving them subsidy basically slaps down on them and says, no, 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 NGO, you're, you're not supposed to be, you know, <laughs> commercializing, you know, but this again puts them in this rock and this hard place that they are being forced to remain dependent upon donations in a time where it's obvious that all of this is a lot less uh, than it was. And certainly now with the COVID-19 crisis, I don't see any perspective of, uh, of this changing. So it's not just NGOs that are susceptible to the subsidy trap. Uh, you know, there's other groups that also have a similar problem. The cultural sector, same thing. You know, if artists or musicians receive cultural subsidies, um, the moment that an artist decides to do, to do something like start a company, you know, preferably so that that artist is able to do something like, say, feed themselves, <laughs> you know, or, uh, you know, without maybe having to, uh, you know, clean houses or something to be able to make ends meet. The problem is that as soon as they start a business, then whoever is giving them that cultural subsidy subsidy then says, yeah, but dear artist, you know, we weren't, you know, we're giving you a cultural subsidy. You're not supposed to be starting a business. You know, so uh, the cultural sector is susceptible to this. Uh, academics face exactly the same problem. So if you're at the university receiving uh, grants, uh, you know, whether it's a science foundation or, you know, the, the moment you start a company, then you basically have to start dealing with uh, technology transfer offices uh, of, at the university. And I can tell you from past experience, I used to be an assistant professor of computer science uh, at the Free University of uh, Amsterdam. And at one point in time, I was uh, trying to valorize uh, some research that I had in the RFID security space. The first thing that happened was the TTO basically swooped in and was like, OK, whatever you do, we need you to sign this uh, document that says, you know, that you're going to give us a certain percentage of any company that you ever start ever. <laughs> at which point I'm, I looked at it and I'm like, what? I'm not signing this, <laughs> you know. And of course, uh, well, I'm glad I didn't. But it was ridiculous that they even asked. But nonetheless, uh, another group that tends to fall into the uh, subsidy trap as well is open source projects, because uh, they also tend to receive subsidies uh, to work on sort of these little pet projects. But they're so idealistic that the moment that they start thinking, oh, you know, commercialize what? You know, money is evil. Why, why should we do this? <laughs> um, and this is sort of, I think, the heart of the problem, that the exact people who should be starting companies uh, are not. You know, and in part, uh, this is also, I think, a, a cultural problem because, you know, we're sort of separated into silos. <laughs> you know, I mean, you've got the uh, business people sort of on one side and then you've got, you know, the uh, artists and activists, you know, <laughs> uh, and creatives sort of on the other side. And, and both sides are kind of like looking suspiciously <laughs> at each other. <laughs> You know, um, but what we don't realize is that actually those two sides need each other. 
I mean, you know, the the rationalists, like the scientists, uh, you know, the technologists, the business people, we need artists and, and creatives and activists to, to, to understand that there's more than just nine to five jobs and maximizing shareholder value. <laughs> um, you know, while at the same time, the artists and the creatives and the activists also need us in equal measure to get them to understand that, yes, you need a business model. You need to give a solid foundation for your art or for your activism to make sure that it can be sustainable for the long term. But but unfortunately, this is something that by and large is ignored. If you think about incubators, for example, um, you know, I'm a computer scientist, you know, uh, and, and, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough that when I started Radically Open Security, we went through an incubation program at the Amsterdam Center for Entrepreneurship, which is basically the local incubator that belongs to the Amsterdam University system. Um, I was able to partake of this uh, incubation program for free. <laughs> it was basically subsidized uh, by the Dutch government. And, you know, it was most certainly very helpful in enabling me to be able to create uh, my startup. Now, the problem is that if you think about it, like creative artists, for example, or activists, what incubators are there for those people? <laughs> you know, I mean, I know a very small number of uh, initiatives uh, where they have been trying to uh, incubate uh, creative artists. And the, the weird thing is, I mean, there's no subsidy for these at all. <laughs> uh, so basically, they're trying to actually just pay really large entrance fees, you know, to these creative artists, thus, you know, causing them to get into debt, you know, and just telling them, look, it's an investment in your future, you should pay this, you know, when, you know, those of us who actually need it less, you know, the, the business people, the, the computer scientists, the technologists, you know, we get all of this handed to us on a silver platter. You know, so I think that this is something actually that we need to talk about, <laughs> you know, um, you know, we need to basically address the concept of this, you know, the subsidy trap with local governments to make sure that they stop forcing, you know, uh, artists and activists uh, to be able to make a choice between harnessing business versus being true to their craft. You know, and also on the business side, I mean, I think we need to, like, lose the silos. You know, we, we need to start basically creating more partnerships, you know, with the more creative among us, because, you know, we need to understand that if we're going to produce anything of value for the world, that we need to uh, embrace this. One of the things also with incubators that I think that we don't uh, pay enough attention to is that many incubators have a financial conflict of interest. Now, what I mean by this uh, is that the business model of the majority of business incubators is to take equity in their startups. However, this influences uh, what they're teaching. Now, I can illustrate this as follows. So I mentioned uh, Amsterdam Center for Entrepreneurship that uh, incubated radically open security. So I partnered with ACE. ACE is a very open-minded incubator because they are uh, government funded and also because they're affiliated with the university system. So I've been teaching uh, classes on post-growth entrepreneurship. In fact, coincidentally, even yesterday, I spoke to one of their uh, cohorts uh, in their Ready to Scale program. Uh, I've also given lectures during their startup boot camps. And, and basically just telling them about post-growth entrepreneurship and other new forms of social entrepreneurship. 
very, you know, everyone's always very appreciative of it. Not everyone agrees with me, <laughs> but but a lot of people most certainly appreciate the input so they can make better informed decisions moving forward with their startups. Now, I went to a commercial incubator uh, who will not be named <laughs> and I said to them, hey, so, you know, commercial, dear commercial incubator, uh, I'm giving these classes at ACE, you know, and I'm happy to do the same for you completely free of charge. I'm not going to charge you a cent for it. You know, all I want to do is talk to your founders about new forms of social entrepreneurship. Said commercial incubator thought about it and they said, well, you know, uh, you know, we really appreciate the offer, but there's a problem here. The problem is that our investors are investment banks like Merrill Lynch. And to be quite honest, I'm not really sure that they'll like what you have to say. So. I'm sorry, but you know we have to politely decline. So this is a very clear case in which the business model of the incubator is directly impacting uh, what is being taught in this incubator. And, and they're refusing to teach more social you know, ideas about social entrepreneurship just by simply because it comes into conflict with their business model. I think we need to address uh, similar concerns also with business schools. Because, um, you know, many business schools re receive endowments uh, from their alumni. And, you know, this also, of course, has an influence on the, co you know, the content that is being uh, taught in the business school. There's actually a very interesting article from a business school professor named Martin Parker. And it's called Bulldoze the Business School. <laughs> and it's a bit of a funny uh, name for an article, but it's basically where he's talking about how much ideology is actually embedded into business schools, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, and, you know, the funny thing is, you know, slowly there is a discourse that is starting to happen about reforming business education. Another story that I can tell you, um, Occupy Wall Street, if you all remember them, uh, they organized a walkout of EC10, the Introduction to Economics class of Professor Gregor, Professor Gregory Mankiw from Harvard University. They sat in the front row and then the students stood up and then they said, we do not want the ideology that you are teaching in this class. And then they walked out. So what these students were saying was that there is embedded ideology in the economics education and that the, you know, they started after this walkout, student societies, one of which is called reinventing economics. You know, there's also others like the post-crash economic society. The whole point of these student societies was to start a discourse about uh, economics education and, and talking about the fact that, you know, only classical economics are being taught in the business schools. You know, whereas, you know, we know by now that, you know, externalities actually don't exist <laughs> and, and that, um, you know, we don't all behave like rational economic men, nor should we. And, you know, there are other alternate streams of economics that should also be taught as part of the, the modern curriculum to help us face modern day challenges. You know, because there are so many other forms of economics. I mean, you have, uh, you know, of course, uh, you know, uh, Marxist uh, economics and you have uh, feminist economics and ecological economics and you know there's so many alternative streams that barely receive any attention at all. Now 
the question that I have is that why are there no walkouts from, you know, the entrepreneurship departments and why are there no walkouts from our incubators? Because they share exactly the same problem. However, there really is at this given moment in time, no discourse <laughs> that's happening about the fact that we need to reinvent economic, I'm sorry, entrepreneurship education. Um, the furthest that we get is uh, impact incubators. So things like, you know, the impact hubs of the world. But the problem, though, is that um, these impact incubators are clinging to exactly the same model that we've gotten from Silicon Valley. In other words, capital, scale, exit. <laughs> so, you know, but it's just we have a, a slightly different variation on it. We have uh, impact investment, you know, scale, maybe a little bit slower and, you know, still have an exit, <laughs> you know, which ultimately I, I think, you know, with the impact ecosystem does not necessarily go get us as far as we need to go. So, you know, there's very little discussion all around about bootstrapping, <laughs> which I think, you know, is uh, is actually very important for entrepreneurs in being able to actually maintain our autonomy. And also, you know, other questions about uh, things like scaling, um, exponential growth. Um, I'm sorry, pardon my uh, pardon my cat here. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so basically. Just, you know, we need to start questioning uh, what is being taught in these entrepreneurship programs, because there are so many things that we questions that we don't ask, like why exponential curves? You know, the first time you get into a startup boot camp, that is the first thing you're going to see, you know, a an explanation of why your business, you know, needs that to make that exponential curve and how you need to basically construct a story, preferably for pitch to investors, you know, about why you're going to scale exponentially for, from, you know, three to five years so you can then exit. Um, those of you who are already savvy, you know, in venture capital are going to know this story already. We tend to want to aspire to become what is called a unicorn. So in other words, uh, a company with a billion dollar valuation. But I think we need to change the terms here. Let's stop calling them unicorns and let's start calling them battery chickens, <laughs> because that's exactly what it is. You are basically artificially force feeding investment capital to a startup so that they can sort of plump up and look really juicy and attractive, you know, <laughs> and, and this is, you know, that that exponential growth for three to five years. And then once they're sort of plump and, 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 and juicy enough, uh, you know, then they essentially are led to their liquidation, uh, you know, a.k.a. the exit, which is basically when, you know, the financial value is pulled out of the company. All the while, you know, because they're growing off of investment capital, they are revenue negative, you know, cash flow negative, which is completely not surprising. You know, if you start from day one, you know, hiring, you know, um, there, you know, there's no way that customer revenue is actually going to be able to keep pace with the rate at which you're uh, hiring. And of course, people also are the most expensive uh, things that are out there. So um, basically, uh, the point that I'm trying to make here is that um, you're whether or not you actually have a solid value proposition and whether or not you have a solid business model starts to become sort of 
besides the point, <laughs> you know, um, whether or not your reg revenue, uh, I'm sorry, whether or not your cash flow negative, uh, if you can turn yourself into an attractive, quote unquote, aqua hire, <laughs> uh, in other words, being able to get yourself acquired by a larger entity, or, you know, if you, you know, if you can manage a successful IPO, then at that point, your lack of a business model is no longer your problem, <laughs> you know? And then basically as, you know, the founders and the investors, we can basically get out <laughs> with uh, whatever we earn, uh, you know, based upon the acquisition or the IPO price. And then also, um, you know, in a way, it's kind of like pulling a pump and dump scheme on the public markets with these revenue losing companies. You know, we, we saw this, most prominently with WeWork, which was sort of the most egregious uh, example of uh, a revenue-losing uh, unicorn, in which they were spending revenue five times as quickly as they were uh, gaining it, you know, with sort of overpriced uh, co-working locations. But, you know, also many other so-called successful Silicon Valley unicorns, the Ubers, the Airbnbs, you know, uh, all of these, uh, you know, they, oftentimes they have their IPOs, and then what happens you know, whoever bought the stock loses money because this system only works in a growth economy. As long as the economy is growing and continues growing, then it'll be fine. But the moment that something happens, like, say, a COVID-19 crisis in which, uh, you know, back in March, uh, the uh, stock market loses a third of its value, it's always the final investor that's left holding the bag. And oftentimes that final investor just so happens to be, you know, those little Robin Hood investors that, you know, are speculating and, and just trying to make, burn a buck off of this. And most of them don't even understand really the, what, what's going on in, the, in this model anyways. So honestly, you know, I have questions whether or not performing this, you know, this kind of pump and dump scheme on the public markets with a revenue losing you know, cashing out shell or organizations should even be legal, but okay, you know, th this is, you know, a discussion. Um, there's some really good books that uh, talk about this kind of thing in more detail. I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with uh, Douglas Rushkoff, but he writes some really amazing books. Uh, one particular book that I think is awesome that everyone should read is called Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. Uh, he also has a second book, by the way, that is called uh, Team Human, uh, that also I would uh, would highly recommend. But I think that, that uh, throwing rocks at the Google bus particularly should be required reading for anyone who is even thinking about starting a business. So, you know, and I, I think in general, you know, we need to be asking questions, you know, about what we're doing with business. I mean, the way in which we are using them as vehicles for financial extraction. Um, one of the things that I like to ask people uh, about the business that they're, that they're starting is, you know, uh, to imagine for a moment, what if business was one of the most uh, effective forms of activism? And what if you could use business as a mixed media for art? What if you could use business as a vehicle for your spirituality? Or what if uh, you could use business as a uh, vehicle of creative expression? You know, there's nothing stopping us from looking at business this way. <laughs> you know, I mean, business doesn't, by definition, you know, have to be about maximizing shareholder value. You know, this is sort of 
neoliberalistic baggage that that has it's come to accumulate. But if you think about it as at its essence, business does not have to be anything more than a group of people working together to get things done in a financially sustainable fashion. That's it. You know, it doesn't have to be anything more than that. You know, and if you start to dig into this, you find really interesting things. For example, thinking about business as art or business as a form of self-expression, you could think about business as a hero's journey, a la Joseph Campbell, you know, <laughs> in which uh, you tend to have a hero, a protagonist, and then they go on a mission, and then they, uh, you know, meet, meet a mentor, and then they find an obstacle. And, you know, this is the kind of uh, story that uh, you find in almost every single theater piece. Now, the question is, as an entrepreneur, you know, we are writing our own script of our hero's journey of entrepreneurship. <laughs> and the question is, what kind of a story do we want to tell? You know, this isn't a story that we're telling with words, but this is a story that we tell through our actions. <laughs> and the, what we can ask, how can we find dramatic unity between the overall mission, so basically of this journey that we're on, you know, and the everyday operational decisions that we make in running our business. Yeah, this is one way that we can view this. Uh, we're very rarely, of course, encouraged to think about it this way. Also, business as a form of spirituality. <laughs> Um, you know, this is also, you know, at, at first uh, blush, people would say, well, what does religion have to do with business? You know, well, actually quite a bit, uh, if you think about it. Um, for example, um, you know, if you look at uh, Eastern texts, things like Buddhist te texts, Taoist texts, <laughs> uh, there's actually very much in the Tao Te Ching uh, that talks about leaders. There's actually a really great book uh, by John Hyder. Uh, that is called the Tao of Leadership, and it actually translates the different verse, verses of the Tao Te Ching <laughs> into a number of leadership principles, including, I mean, I can't quote it verbatim, but I think it was something about, you know, the best leader is the one that uh, steps back and the people then say, but I did this by myself. I mean, you know, there's actually very much uh, that we can take uh, take out of this. Um, which I think is much better uh, leadership training than, you know, what we tend to get in business schools where we learn how to be assertive and we learn how to be overly self-confident, <laughs> you know, because I, I think ironically enough, sometimes the traits that were taught uh, in business schools about how to be a leader is actually the opposite of what we probably do need <laughs> to be a successful leader, because sometimes empathy, you know, is more <laughs> important than, uh, you know, uh, being able to communicate assertively. Uh, same thing is with uh, nonviolent communications, uh, nonviolent communication like from Mar Marshall Rosenberg, um, vulnerability. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if you know Brene, Brene Brown uh, and her excellent uh, series of books, but uh, she also has a book called um, Dare to Lead <laughs> in which she talks about how, you know, there is no courage <laughs> without vulnerability, you know, and, and oftentimes as a founder, you know, when things tend to go wrong, quite simply, it's because, you know, we're overconfident, <laughs> you know, and, and, and too assertive rather, or maybe because we're not listening enough. And, and it's a completely different set of qualities, I think, that, uh, you know, we need to be learning. And also that even business schools, I think, are responsible to be teaching us. But, but this is not what we're getting in this education. 
Um, also, there's other interesting ideas in religion <laughs> uh, about business. Uh, for example, um, there is a, a concept of usury uh, in the Bible, actually, and, and, and it comes in, in the three major world religions, Judaism, Christianity, as well as Buddhism. Uh, this is actually really a big deal. Um, interest bearing loans. Um, so basically interest bearing debt. Uh, this is actually almost, you know, they say the love of money is the root of all evil. In Christianity, if you think about uh, the story of uh, Jesus with the money changers, Jesus threw the money changers out of the temple because uh, they were basically, uh, you know, charging uh, interest bearing, you know, <laughs> uh, well, they were basically charging extra on top of uh, on top of that uh, money that they were changing. And he basically thought this was sort of defiling the temple district and he threw them out. Uh, you've got the similar uh, concepts in the Quran. You have, for example, Islamic banks. Uh, in uh, some parts of the world, which, 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 which interestingly enough, yeah, <laughs> um, you know, these banks actually don't permit uh, interest or, or certainly or, or interest rates in either case above uh, a particular rate that they find uh, proportionally. Also in Judaism, you have a similar concept. Um, the funny thing is, is that uh, all of this growth that we are um, dependent on, this actually all comes back to this concept of usury, this whole concept of, of interest-bearing debt. There's a really interesting story from an economist, and his name is Bernard Leetire. <laughs> and the story is called The Parable of the Eleventh Round. So here's how it goes. There was a village in the outback, and at, in this village, they uh, had a market and they exchanged animals. So they had cows and they had horses and they had chickens. Now, one day, a stranger showed up with white shoes and a shine, uh, with a white hat and with shiny shoes. And the stranger looked at all of these poor people, you know, carrying around animals. And he said, oh, how primitive, <laughs> you know, if you could, uh, what, what you guys should do, I have a much easier way for you to do this. So bring me a cowhide and then come back tomorrow and I'll have a solution for you to be able to do things easier. So they come back the next day and the stranger had cut coins out of this cowhide. He called them rounds. And he, he said, well, what I'm going to do uh, is that, let's say that there's 10 families. I'm going to give each of these families 10 rounds. And what you can then do is go back to the market tomorrow and you can exchange these rounds with each other. Let's say that each round is worth one chicken. And now you can basically just do it with these coins rather than having to carry chickens around. That's so much easier. So they, they took the rounds and then they went to the market and they started exchanging the rounds and they, you know, and it worked. And, and they went back to the stranger and they said, wow, this is fantastic. Thank you so much. You know, what, what can, we're grateful. What can we do to thank you for this? So the stranger said, well, OK, if you want to thank me, here's what we can do. I'm going to come back in one year from now. When I come back, I want each of you to give me an 11th round back. Yeah, at that point, the villagers looked a bit confused and they were like, yeah, but where, where are we supposed to get that 11th round from? And the stranger said, just you wait, you'll see. So at, that, at this point, the uh, villagers had three options. One option uh, was essentially, you know, when the stranger came back in a year to uh, default and just say, well, we're not going to pay him back. 
The second option was to uh, exclude, basically cut out one of the one of the ten families, because you know if you uh, took those rounds from the tenth family, then each of the nine families would have eleven rounds, and then the last family would only have one round. Uh, so basically, only one family would have to default rather than all of them. Or the third option was quite simply to breed more chickens, <laughs> since uh, each of the uh, you know each of the rounds was worth one chicken. So they decided, well, we don't want to hurt anyone, so let's go with the third option. So what happened is the stranger came back after a year, and then uh, each of the families, ten families, had the eleven rounds. And you know the, the stranger was happy, everyone was happy, you know, and he said, great, well this is absolutely fantastic. Let's let's do this again next year, and the year after, and the year after again. At a certain point, something funny started happening. <laughs> uh, you know, everyone kept breeding more and more chickens. You know, and at a certain point, you know, everyone started eating chicken. And you know, there were, you know, at a certain point, you know, they had enough feather pillows, and you know, there was chicken poop all over the place. They were starting to say, yeah, but you know, we don't actually need any more chickens. You know, we've got enough chickens. So, so what's going on here? Now, in this parable, what wound up happening? is the stranger introduced interest-bearing debt into the system. In other words, the, this usury, you know, and, and also in other words, extraction. Um, as soon as the, uh, you know, th this was introduced into the system, it required uh, growth of their economy, <laughs> uh, in other words, raising more chickens, in order to be able to keep up with the interest rate that the stranger was giving them. <laughs> you know, and, and, and essentially this is sort of a never ending cycle. Now this is what explains, you know, the never ending growth in the societies that we currently live in. If you think about GDP, uh, gross domestic product, uh, which is looking at national economies, you know, this always needs to be up and to the right. You know, the moment that our GDP starts flattening out, off, what happens? You know, it's, you know, layoffs, recession, suffering. But why is this the case? You know, it's the, it's the case because there's so much extraction happening from our economy that we need to continue growing just to maintain a steady state. <laughs> However, this growth puts pressure on our planet, you know, and this growth puts pressure on our economies. And I think we're starting to understand by now that this is not sustainable forever. You know, so this leads to uh, post-growth economics, <laughs> you know, uh, so which is basically starting to ask the question of, well, how can we actually be able to flatten the economy without having bad things happen? You know, and, and given, you know, the fact that we are getting into a period, most certainly with uh, with uh, COVID, in which we can no longer count <laughs> on never ending growth of our economy. I think that, you know, these kinds of questions are becoming more relevant than ever. Um, another thing also is that if you think, you know, coming back to the uh, story with uh, the villagers uh, and the chickens, what, what, what wound up happening was that uh, this extraction from their system, you know, the, this, 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 this interest-bearing debt, this also fostered an atmosphere of competition. See, before the stranger came, each of the families were willing to cooperate and help each other. If there was a bad year, these families would, uh, you know, band together, give resources to each other. But of course, what wound up happening was, you know, as soon as cutting out one family provided a uh, advantage to the other families, that that cooperation started reducing. 
Another thing also is that uh, with the need to grow, it always comes at the expense of something else. <laughs> you know, there is there are no externalities in a system. You know, things are always you know growth is always coming from from somewhere. <laughs> you know, whether it's the planet, whether it's our societies. You know, that, that you know the, the, those resources that we're monetizing have to come from somewhere. And the thing is that uh, you know, oftentimes in growing the monetized economy we are looking for something to monetize and nine times out of ten that either is something that currently belongs to the commons or uh it's some kind of human relationship non-monetized human relationship something we just do for each other <laughs> that uh you know we, we just try try and find some way to intermediate it and uh and, and find a business model for it and, and again, coming back to startup incubators, you know, they, they call this innovation, right? You know, if, if you're innovating, then what you're doing is, you know, they will tell you, you know, find something in the world or find some human relationship and then find ways that you can, you know, uh, facilitate this and then charge a margin on it. You know, th this is precisely what we're being taught, you know, but this is also the problem, you know, because the more we start monetizing the commons, the more we're starting to, to reduce it, you know, and it, it's the usual, you know, of course, the most uh, prominent commons, of course, is, is our, our natural environment, the planet, you know, forests and oil and, you know, natural resources. And of course, this is fine, finite. We can't, you know, uh, monetize the commons forever. And also with human relationships, you know, this is what we need, especially to be resilient in times where our economy is, uh, is dropping, you know, as it currently is, uh, you know, but at the same time, also, you know, we're seeing this disconnect right now during the COVID crisis between Wall Street and Main Street, <laughs> you know, and it's becoming incredibly obvious how, you know, this perpetual pump and dump scheme, how, how d disconnected this actually is from the actual stores, you know, and, and, and small businesses uh, that we're actually running. That's sort of keeping the world going. So I think another question that we need to ask is how can we use business as an instrument for degrowth? And by degrowth, what I mean is that we can actually take the monetized economy and then remove you know, resources from that ecosystem. So basically take cash out of the monetized economy and redirect that towards rebuilding the commons or by recreating non-monetized human relationships. So these are questions that nobody's asking, <laughs> you know, and the thing is, you know, we need incubators that teach this, too. <laughs> so, you know, I've been trying also myself to, you know, create uh, new places in which this can be taught. Uh, I've been working on a methodology that's called post growth entrepreneurship. So it's basically taking the concepts of the post growth economists and then translating that a layer of abstraction down into the entrepreneurship level. Because of course, an economy is a meta concept, right? Um, you know, but uh, it's the entrepreneurs that are, we are implementing, you know, the businesses that the economy, the economy is composed of. So we can't know how to build a post-growth economy until we know how to build post-growth companies. So two and a half years ago, I created a uh, post-growth startup incubator called Nonprofit Ventures. 
And I've been using this uh, to develop educational materials. <laughs> so uh, I've been uh, giving, I, I created a pilot class actually at the Free University of Amsterdam in their business school. And I taught it to 40 students uh, to very good reviews. And at this point, uh, post-growth entrepreneurship is now worth six European credit points in their business school at the Free University of Amsterdam. I'm also working right now with uh, the University of Amsterdam to put, uh, basically create a MOOC, uh, so basically an online version of the same class to put it online. They have a Coursera account and we're hoping, you know, <laughs> to be able to put this up on Coursera. So we've already filmed a pilot video and we're working on, uh, you know, creating this MOOC. It's not ready yet. It's going to take us probably, I would say, yeah, maybe another six months at least. Uh, to be able to get uh, this to the point where we can launch it. But uh, but in either case, uh, you know, this is another ongoing project that we're working on education wise. Uh, also, in March of this past year, I also created a post growth uh, startup incubator. I'm sorry, not the incubator, a sorry, a post growth um, uh, startup boot camp. And we had uh, 13 founders and also five organizers. And it was a one week uh, thing on the, the island of Tuscheling, uh, which is basically this little Dutch island with beaches and dunes and forests, basically a really pretty idyllic, idyllic uh, location. And what we did is this uh, startup boot camp was a combination between a personal development retreat <laughs> uh, and a startup boot camp. So, you know, we did things during this uh, startup boot camp like uh, meditation, you know, 15 minutes before breakfast, 15 minutes before dinner. We did morning uh, writing, something called the morning pages. So I'm not sure if you all are familiar with a book that's called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Uh, she has a number of tools in this book, including artist dates, uh, but also but morning pages is the largest tool. And it's 30 minutes of longhand stream of consciousness writing first thing in the morning. And it's meant essentially for clearing out uh, blocks, you know, sort of uh, mental blocks in your head, sort of caging your monkey mind and being able to promote creativity. If it sounds a bit wishy-washy, I'm just saying, you know, hold your skepticism and try it. <laughs> because a lot of the ideas also that I've had with my own business and with post-growth uh, entrepreneurship also came from me from following, uh, you know, following this process. Uh, similarly, uh, we did things like walks on the beach, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, any, anyway, this is what I was saying about personal development retreat. On the other hand, we were also there to work, <laughs> you know, so these students were here, students, these founders were here to build actual startups. So they were filling out business model canvases uh, this week. They were uh, creating value propositions, validating market assumptions, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, basically, you know, preparing a, a final presentation. You know, at the end, unlike other uh, startup boot camps, they were not pitching or a panel of investors, but rather they were actually sort of, you know, presenting for each other. So rather than, you know, trying to compete with another one another, you know, so you can sort of select the investors can select a winner. Rather, it's more that they were just trying to say, well, this is the assistance that I need. And they were trying to create collaborative platforms amongst themselves so that by working together that all of their startups uh, could, could, you know, be uh, could move forward. So, you know, this was effective. And what wound up happening is several startups, post-growth startups, were uh, launched in the course of this week. For example, 
um, Alexander Medic, who works for the AIDS homes uh, in the Netherlands, he created a startup that week called Disrupt Development, which is essentially a uh, consultancy, business consultancy company for NGOs. <laughs> and he also has the same not-for-profit business model as Radically Open Security. <laughs> uh, also, another example of a startup that started that week was uh, Xenolearn by uh, Claire, Claire Lunesson. And this is a educational material development company that is uh, also, uh, you know, creating basically materials like educational materials against racism and xenophobia. <laughs> so she's been doing uh, revenue uh, producing events to support uh, things like Black Lives Matter. <laughs> you know, this is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> and, and by creating these new kinds of uh, startup boot camps, <laughs> you know, then we actually it's not just like theory, you know, where we're just talking about, uh, you know, new ideas and, and new ways of doing it. But we are starting new companies, you know, with actual books that can be analyzed, you know, and flesh and blood people that are creating new products and services, you know, and, and we can create this post growth economy one startup at a time, you know, and people don't necessarily need to so-called believe in it. You know, I mean, it just takes a small number of like-minded people who decide that they want to do this. And this creates employment opportunity, which takes, you know, some of the less ideal, idealistic people along with us. If you think about, you know, about it, this uh, post-growth ecosystem can e exist, you know, in parallel with uh, the commercial ecosystem. So it's not one or the other, you know, we can have both at the same time. But thinking about this concept of, you know, social businesses or, you know, giving all of our dividend to charity, imagine just for one moment, if somebody created a post-growth accountancy firm, you know, that we're ab able to have even a fraction of the size of, you know, Accenture, Ernst & Young, KPMG, Deloitte, you know, imagine, if you donated the profits of that to a foundation, you know, <clears throat> if we did this here in the Netherlands, I think that we would have enough profits to be able to single handedly fund a universal basic income pilot in the entire Netherlands and think about how much that would change things. So anyway, I hope that this is all uh, food for thought and uh, I would be more than happy uh, to take some questions from you all. Thank you, Melanie. And it was really hard getting you to un, to uh, to share some thoughts. I mean, you you win the award for the only person who's been able to hold everyone's attention for the entire hour. So thank you so much with that. Uh, if there are any questions, just post them here on the right hand side. People were quite impressed with what you were saying. Some of them, you know, you were actually describing what they were doing. Uh, one, I had a question for you. When you started, you bootstrapped, as you were saying, but at a certain time, we got 40 staff, you got COVID coming up now. Who is financing? Who was, who did, did finance you if you needed external capital? Uh, so we never needed external capital. I mean, we're a consultancy company. So, you know, I also, we're set up as a platform of freelancers. So basically uh, that has enabled us to be very flexible. So when COVID first hit, uh, a number of our customers were distracted. I mean, that that's completely understandable because, uh, you know, they just needed to get their teleconferencing and their uh, VPNs working and they weren't thinking about doing penetration tests and security audits at that time. 
So uh, what happened is uh, we're a network of freelancers, and when I we're we're a platform essentially. So in that sense, a similar kind of platform as Uber, Airbnb, you know. So uh, what happens is when you work with freelancers, uh, if let's say customer demand drops by fifty percent. If you have people on internal contracts, then you have to fire half the people because that's the only way to be able to cut your costs uh, to handle that 50% drop. But if you have freelancers, then uh, what happens is each of the freelancers basically goes from 100% of their income down to 50% of their income. <laughs> now, this is a lot less catastrophic for a person because a drop from 100% income down to 0% income is catastrophic. But a drop from 100% income down to 50% income, I mean, especially for our, our security professionals who anyway are a bit overpaid to begin with just because we're in a pretty hot industry. You know, I mean, look, if you drop from 100000 a year down to 50000 a year, I mean, yeah, you're not going to be happy about it. But uh, but most likely you're still going to be able to pay your mortgage <laughs> and be able to put some food on the table. It just means maybe you'll, you'll go on holiday a little bit less. OK, COVID broke the world, so we're not going on holiday anyway. <laughs> um you know, but the point is that, I mean, it didn't last too long. And at a certain point, uh, the security requests uh, picked up again, just because for compliance reasons, uh, you know, uh, security audits need to happen anyway. So that they want to, and plus more things are going online now. So ironically enough, my company now is busier than it was this time last year, and which is explainable by the fact that all this new stuff is going online. So I'm very lucky that I'm one of the in one of the business sectors that I think hasn't been very heavily affected by uh, COVID-19. Maybe other companies have had a different experience, but this has been my experience. Uh, so the truth is, we have never needed funding. Uh, once uh, or twice, actually twice, I needed a cash flow loan, uh, which I got from the NLNet Foundation, which is basically the foundation we're donating our profits to. Uh, twice, I took a uh, loan from them of 10,000 euros because uh, of our 30-day payment terms. We've got some customers that pay us after 60 days, and then we pay our, our, our staff within 30 days, which, of course, does cause really large uh, cash flow swings. When we were basically a scale up around year two, year three, uh, there were a few times we dipped into the red, and then we got a loan that to cover, you know, cover that period. And I pay back that loan quickly. <laughs> um, it was an interest-free loan, but basically that was it. You know, we have had no extra funding, and we've needed no extra funding. And for companies, basically with a service-based business model, I don't think you actually need funding. You don't need financing. And I think it's one of those uh, ideologies that's taught to us by business schools and incubators that they claim that we do need financing. I think that you can use services to bootstrap products and you can use pro uh, products to bootstrap uh, ecosystems. <laughs> and uh, it takes more patience and it takes a certain amount of lateral thinking. But um, you know, I think that's also one of those ideologies that we need to question that uh, finance is necessarily required to be able to uh, start a, and run a successful company. Okay, Jennifer had a question. Are you the 1% being shareholders is also pensions and the latter is often rolled out as a reason for keeping economic models as they, as they are, uh, uh, as they are with shareholders and with being paramount, how do you feel that transitioning? Okay, uh, let's see, pensions. So here's the thing. I mean, uh, I, the pension, uh, what we're doing with pensions anyway is kind of gambling. <laughs> Uh, you know, because again, if, if we start going into a uh, non-growth economy, basically into a recession anyway, you know, these 
these pension funds uh, get less. There's also so much extraction coming from these pension companies that uh, I, I don't believe that necessarily this is the most helpful way of being able to support individuals. It's exactly what I said uh, before about having a post-growth economy support a universal basic income. <laughs> I know that not everybody agrees with the idea of a universal basic income. I mean, certainly in the United States, there's a lot of people that will say, yeah, but why do we let people be lazy? <laughs> and, you know, But I think that if people have uh, their financial needs taken care of, I think that they'll be more likely to want to start these kinds of weird, comp weird nonprofit companies, which I think ultimately would be you know in the benefits uh, of us all so I think that uh, this is probably the way to be able to sort of break the cycle if we can you know create universal basic incomes that would negate the need for a pension because basically everybody is getting a payment and then once people are freed from the rat race of working for commercial business and jobs that they don't care about I, I think that they would start putting themselves towards more meaningful activities I think a, a number of people would want to be entrepreneurs for the sake of being an entrepreneur because <laughs> once again it was what I was saying about a hero's journey I mean I think this can be a true expression of ourselves <laughs> You know, and ultimately, you know, I think most entrepreneurs, you know, if we are living in more certain conditions, you know, we want to use our businesses to leave a legacy, <laughs> you know, I mean, to, to be what we can leave behind. And, you know, I think this is also the reason why, you know, for serial entrepreneurs, oftentimes, you know, the first time they do it for the money and the second time they do it for uh, for meaning. And for purpose. <laughs> so I think once our basic needs are taken care of, then I think it's a lot easier for people to say, well, okay, this time around, I want to do something better for the world. I, I understand this doesn't apply to everybody. People who are in, in a desperate situation financially are not going to be in the position to do this. However, uh, it only takes a small number of like-minded leaders <laughs> to create these post-growth initiatives, and then we create the employment opportunity to be able to take everyone else along. <laughs> you know, and then those people who perhaps can't afford uh, themselves to be able to bootstrap a company because they don't have enough in their savings account, but they can afford to choose a social employer rather than a commercial employer. And I think mm. all things well, if they can earn the same salary at a, at a post-growth company rather than at a commercial company, I mean, Lord knows why would they not choose for that? I think the majority of the people are in the world are good. This is what I believe. And I believe if you offer people the choice <laughs> to be able to do something good versus doing something potentially harmful, I think people will consistently choose to do that thing that's good. It just takes a few of us in privileged positions you know, to be able to make other choices and to decide that it's a priority for us to reform entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship education, to ask these questions in a public way, and to be brave enough to start companies that are for, you know, pure positive impact rather than just for our own personal benefit. And I do believe that there's enough people out there uh, that are willing to try this. I agree. There, there are plenty. There, are, I mean, we, we've been doing it for twenty-four years, so uh, there, are, there are plenty out there. Um, have you ever turned down a client? Oh yeah, you could, you for sure. The, your values, even though they might be a well-paying client. Yeah, yeah, we've got a pretty stringent uh, ethics policy, so uh, we won't work with intelligence agencies. I've also, you know, there's also. We basically classify our customers into what we call uh, black hat, white hat, and gray hat. <laughs> so uh, black hat customers are customers that I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. So this is things like intelligence agencies, zero-day vendors. I mean, basically anybody doing 
things that are either blatantly illegal or things that we just don't agree with fundamentally. Um, we've, we've got white hat customers, which are basically customers that we think are fine, you know, but we're going to evaluate their requests on a case by case basis. And then we've got gray hat customers, which are sort of like, well, okay, they're doing a few things that we disagree with, but they're also doing other things that we like. So we're going to, you know, we're basically, and we do, we do work for those customers. However, uh, we refuse to sign an NDA so we can basically justify our participation, our involvement with them later if we have to. And we also only do work, uh, if it contributes to the open source. So in other words, uh, we will do work that is funded by them if it makes the world more equal, but not if it makes the world uh, less equal. And it, an example of a gray hat customer that we've worked with is the Dutch National Police. <laughs> you know, they do offensive hacking that we disagree with, but we also believe that police is ne are necessary for the public order. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we've done things for them, like, for example, uh, developing an open source um, security, basic, basic security awareness training <laughs> that uh, basically went up on our GitHub repository and it's available for free for everyone. And, you know, we need to be pragmatic, too. It's kind of like how Tor is funded by the Department of Homeland Security. I mean, you can feel how you want about the Department of Defense, but I consider that also a gray hat uh, customer. So, you know, and we basically evaluate those kinds of things on a case by case basis. But and you, but you said that you work for the financial sector banks to to test their security systems, their firewalls and things like that. Do you make a distinction between the banks when you work for? Uh, I don't know, you work for ASN Bank, but you want to work for JP Morgan? Yeah, so far we've uh, worked for uh, Tridos, uh, and we have also worked for, um, what are they called again, uh, CNAB. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so those are the two banks actually so far that we've worked for. Um, that being said, we, 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 you know, we work for a home too, and that's definitely one of those big commercial, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, so the thing is, uh, we, we've asked those questions and in the end have decided uh, consciously to not have a uh, policy, a, a customer policy as strict as, say, Triodos Bank. And it's for the following reason. If you have, let's say I have a bank account at uh, Abian Ambro in the Netherlands. <laughs> and let's say, hypothetically speaking, that they're hacked and they have a data breach. Who's going to mm. suffer for this? Is it going to be the bank or is it going to be the people. <laughs> um, you know, I don't want to have it on my conscience that a whole bunch of consumers, I mean, people, you and me, you know, that we have our, our data spread all over the dark web because I refused uh, to give service to a bank in helping them to uh, make their security posture better. Uh, mm. So I think in this particular case, uh, I find it justified. Same thing with utility companies, because <laughs> we also work with some power companies like Tenet and Aneco and Staden. Um, you know, I would have to think twice about Shell. <laughs> They've never approached us, but uh, but nonetheless, you know, with those kind of energy grid companies, I mean, I see a lot of reasons to be able to uh, protect them. You know, I mean, one of those uh, apocalypse scenarios actually is if the uh, power grid goes down. Uh, there's a really great book called The Knowledge, uh, which actually starts out uh, with, a, with a, a portrait of what would happen if the energy grid goes down. And, and the, the too long didn't read version of it is basically that the entire society crumbles <laughs> and, and turns into one tremendous anarchy. And we go, go back to primitive living conditions. And the whole book, The Knowledge, is trying to encapsulate the knowledge we would need to be able to rebuild society from scratch if such a scenario were to happen. This is why I would work with the energy companies, because, you know, I don't want to society to crumble and I can feel how I want you know about power companies but uh, I think that I'm also on the right side of things to, to be helping them as well.
And are we that are is are we vulnerable? Is the energy sector uh, in Europe vulnerable for going down? Of course, <laughs> yeah, terribly. <laughs> I mean, everything's vulnerable. Uh, you know, there is no secure software. There are no secure systems. There are no secure companies or organizations. Radically Open Security, my company, is also not secure. <laughs> you know, it, secure doesn't exist. So, you know, what we have is a set of uh, trade-offs that we make. If you think about, say, uh, credit cards, uh, you know, there are so many different ways that we can, you know, conduct fraud with a credit card. However, we have social uh, and uh, business uh, backups. So basically, if I notice credit card fraud, uh, all I have to do is call up the credit card company and then say, hey, could you please reverse this transaction? And I know as a consumer that they're going to do this. So this is what lowers the uh, risk to an acceptable level for me as a consumer. So, you know, it's always this this trade off between risks and benefits, you know, and it's it's also the same uh, with this. Okay. And um, what is the big ambition of uh, your organization? Proving that post-growth businesses are, can be successful, or is it to have a thousand hackers helping you? Uh, what? Yeah. When, when most people say, where do you want to see radically open security in 10 years? My answer is, I don't care. <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, I view growth as a threat. Uh, that is, you know, because if you look, if you grow, uh, you have to hire the correct staff. Uh, you have to maintain the integrity culturally of your company. You know, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. <laughs> um, ironically enough, though, by not focusing on growth, and rather by focusing on other things like integrity and maintaining a good experience for customers, for staff members, for society. Ironically enough, that's caused us to grow, and I think more than if we had been focused upon growth, <laughs> just quite simply because we have a, a better value proposition for everybody who's involved. That being said, uh, I want to grow as slowly as I have to to maintain that integrity. <laughs> You know, and, and beyond that, I actually really don't care. I believe in uh, decentralization. I believe in uh, distribution. <laughs> I would rather that there are a hundred other little companies like Radically Open Security that, that pop up, <laughs> you know, in the same space. You know, the market's big enough for all of us. And I would rather have a lifestyle company that works for me <laughs> that I know I can maintain the integrity of. That, that to me is more important. And that's why I'm moving my focus onto post-growth entrepreneurship. I don't want a, a ginormous, you know, company. That, that's really not what I'm going for. I would far rather help to create a distributed network uh, of post-growth companies that can form a coherent ecosystem. And is it easy working with all these nerds? Uh, I think so, because I'm a really big nerd myself. <laughs> <laughs> but how, how many women work at your uh, of the forty staff? Um, not enough. Uh, you know, security is a really male-dominated uh, area. Um, we have a few. Women, uh, most particularly on our project management teams and on our infrastructure teams. Uh, I've had female pen testers in the past, but they're few and far between. 
you know, I've, I've done a lot of work with uh, like women in cybersecurity organizations. I'm also the co-founder of the Dutch Girl Geek Dinner. <laughs> so I've done quite a bit of, of work. You know, I also uh, led an all-female uh, capture the flag team <laughs> uh, that uh, trained up uh, for the Hack in the Box CTF uh, for two years. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm very involved in those kinds of efforts because I think we need to promote more women in security. But the problem is just quite simply, it's hard to hire what isn't there. And um, um, oh, I, I just lost my my train of thought. Um, did you have you ever worked on creating a secure smart uh, a smartphone app for voting? <laughs> Uh, no, I have not. But uh, if you have any great ideas, I'd love to take it. If you are, well, I'm surprised that everything is digitized except voting. You yeah. Know, when they say, well, you can go online, you go online to get a ballot, which is mailed to you. Why is it so difficult to make a secure voting system where people can yeah. vote at, at their leisure? To be honest, I'm extremely suspicious about online voting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there's been a lot of really great research uh, over the last uh, certainly at least 20 years. I mean, uh, look up, uh, for example, uh, like Ed Felton. Uh, you know, th there's been a number of really great, uh, you know, attempts at both hacking voting machines as well as trying to, to build more secure voting machines. And I think the consensus from the academic security community after 20 years of research is just that it's a very, very, very difficult thing to pull off. Um, I trust the, uh, honestly, you know, paper and pencil. I know that that also has its own set of problems. <laughs> uh, you know, in the end, it comes back to the trade-offs uh, that I was explaining before. But there's a really interesting story. Uh, there's a hacker, a Dutch hacker, whose name is uh, Rolf Honkreip. He uh, founded one of the largest uh, hosting providers called Access for All uh, in the Netherlands mm. that uh, was acquired and is a long story that I don't want to go into. But Rolf, at one point, he created this uh, association that was called uh, Vifertra with STEM computers needs. So in, in English, we don't trust voting computers. And he called them voting computers rather than voting machines uh, to basically make the point that voting machines are just computers and you can program them and you can get them to do anything you want. So what he did is that together with a journalist, they managed to borrow a voting machine and he basically pulled out uh, the EEPROM, reprogrammed it, put it back, and he basically taught the voting machine how to play chess. He made a YouTube video of all of this. And then in the YouTube video, he basically ended with the question, if I can teach a voting machine how to play chess, what else can I have it do? Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, no one has any questions. Everyone is still actually <laughs> around and, and not going to the networking part. This is quite unusual. Um, oh, Thomas has one question. Go ahead, ask, post your question, Thomas. All right, but while you're typing that, um, what can we do to help you? Um, what can you do to help me? Um, I think that anybody, first of all, who finds this interesting, uh, I would love to talk to you. So please connect with me on LinkedIn and send me a message. Uh, you know, for me, I mean, now that the uh, COVID has kind of decimated conferences, it's sort of the only way that I can have a decent hallway track, uh, you know, is by having you connect with me on LinkedIn and we can basically set up a, a video call or something like that. I would love to hear 
from all of you, you know, what, what questions do you have? What did you think about this presentation? Can you think of any ideas or collaborations? Or do you want to start a post-growth company? Or, you know, do you want to participate with nonprofit ventures? Any of these things. Or do you want a pen test that Radically Open Security can do for you? That too. You know, please just uh, reach out to me. So that's one thing you can do. Another thing also is if you're involved with things like business incubators, um, we're providing uh, things like guest lectures, uh, also educational resources. So uh, if you're involved with an incubator and you'd like to work some of these ideas into your existing incubator, I would love to partner with you <laughs> uh, to try and you know get some of these ideas you know into your existing uh, vehicle. Similarly, if you work for, say, a corporation or a multinational and you would like to think about ways to use your corporation or multinational to support a post-growth uh, economy, I can talk to me about that, too, because there's a lot of very sensible changes uh, that we can make, things like uh, introducing social procurement procurement policies, <laughs> you know, there's different ways that I think we can leverage multinationals. Also looking at uh, how you spin off uh, startups, <laughs> you know, what kind of startups you might be spinning off, uh, you know, there's definitely ways that we can leverage that as well. Also, if you work for an NGO and you think, wow, cool, I really wish I had a post-growth company that was sending its dividends to me. Can you help me start one? <laughs> Again, reach out to me. I can give you some brainstorming or some advice about this kind of a thing. You know, even if you're in up in politics or in government and you want to know how can I add this as talking points, you know, or lobby points, you know, or, or to our platform, you know, prior to some election. I mean, I'm more I'm happy to talk to you too. I mean, so basically I think no matter who you are, or, or even if you're an investor and you think, well, okay, I'm offended by half the things you're saying, but uh, <laughs> I said, but I still want to know what kind of a role can I play moving forward. I mean, maybe you think I'm obsolete, but but how how can I take my good intentions and still manage to do something with the position I'm in? Talk uh, to me too. I have a question. How do you see the investor relations in terms? Thomas was asking, how do you see the investor relations in terms of extractive economy, i.e., to avoid the negative extraction? If you do not pay dividends, does the motivation fall apart? Depends on the person. You know, I mean, I think some impact investors probably really care about the impact <laughs> and maybe they care about the impact more than they care about the returns. And I think, you know, those those who are wealthy, they know they're in a good position. I mean, oftentimes rich people at a certain point turn to philanthropy anyway. <laughs> you know, in a, in a way, it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> paying off you know, your conscience for all of the commercial things you did earlier on. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of people with money who, you know, I think that they would care about doing things for impact and for meaning this time around. So I think investors most certainly can play a role uh, also in, in, in starting this kind of a ecosystem. But I, I mean, I would love to also have input from investors <laughs> to try and think about also how we can leverage you. But I would rather leverage you than your capital. <laughs> but that being said, I mean, I still think we can leverage your networks. <laughs> um, you know, I think we can leverage uh, your energy. We can leverage your knowledge and expertise. You know, there's plenty that we can leverage without, you know, having capital with strings attached. And it could even be that maybe if we think about it more, maybe interest-free loans or something, you know, even for, for, for you know, uh, things like getting, you know, helping post-growth companies get through a cash flow crisis, but uh, but I'm, I'm always a little bit hesitant uh, with loans because uh, loans are yet another form of uh, sort of a big pot of money that I think, you know, at any time people have a big pot of money, whether it's from a loan or, you know, VC or angel or crowdfunding or subsidy or whatever, I think that it pulls you, you know, it distracts you from your 
product market fit. So, you know, I think it's actually better for most companies to actually not have that. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I realize not everyone in the world is going to want to go this direction or, you know, or will agree with me. Uh, Dorothy from Hong Kong had uh, was actually doing what you were talking about. She was asking, do you think we can change the entire economic system or change the system bit by bit, bottom up? So much based on the other question, can we change the asset preservation mindset of asset owners? Yeah, um, so it's not going to happen overnight, uh, and we certainly can't expect it to. <laughs> uh, I think bottom up is really the only way. Um, you know, it starts, it, it, and we have to think about it in terms of crossing the chasm. <laughs> Uh, you know, it starts with the with the early adopters. You know, we have to start by preaching to our own choir because there's quite a few people who are going to disagree with us and we just shouldn't waste our time and energy on people who, who disagree to that extent. Um, mm -hmm. However, it only takes a small number of like minded people to be able to create prototypes of these ideas. You know, one post growth company that's successful is an oddity. You know, people can look at companies like, for example, Radically Open Security and say, OK, that's weird and interesting. But OK, it's obviously a corner case, you know, 10 post growth companies. And then people start thinking, oh, OK, well, it's still kind of weird and still an oddity. But hmm, maybe there's something here. A hundred post growth companies. And now suddenly you have a movement. <laughs> and once you know, you've got these hundred post growth companies, that's when they're going to start writing it into the business, uh, into the entrepreneurship curriculum. And they're going to start talking about it in incubators. And once we create that change from the bottom up, top down will, you know, will also start reacting to the discourse <laughs> and reacting to the uh, terms, the, the uh, turn of events. But the main thing is, you know, talking is not what's going to convince the skeptics. We need to build it. We need to show them. We need to have data scientists crunch our numbers, <laughs> you know, so that they can see by pure practical experience that this is possible. Because until we actually demonstrate it, nobody's going to believe in the validity of what we're saying. And yes, this is going to take time, but this could also, you know, as things go up from the bottom up with uh, with anything that's a viral idea, you know, sometimes it can go faster than you think. The um, I, I also can confirm Melanie is quite accessible i mean you know sometimes uh, you get connected to someone on linkedin and they don't respond or they connect and you never hear back from them ever that's not the case with melanie so when she says that please reach out to her on linkedin she will respond to you i can i can confirm that um if there are no other questions i mean we're, we've already gone way over time but i'm really uh, happily surprised to see that most of you are, st are sitting around. For those of you who are taking uh, 250 pages of notes, you don't have to do that because this is being taped. So you can always access the presentation afterwards. Um, it, it takes a, like a day and then they, they process the video and uh, you can access that anytime on your phone or on your desktop. Melanie, thank you very, very much. You've been a true inspiration and unique that um, we went way over time, but you kept everyone's attention and you got the most applause ever. So thank you so much. And if there's anything that we can do to help you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to ask. Yeah, well, I'm very grateful that you uh, gave me the platform. So thank you so much, Robert. No, it's brilliant what you're doing. Thank you so much. And thank you all for, for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you uh, next week with a completely different uh, approach. But um, 
different, uh, also a very interesting speaker, but a different track. We'll send you an invitation. Thanks again. Bye. Thank you. Thank you to our guest and audience for joining us today. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe where you listen to your podcast. This was Radical Truth. Stay safe. Stay safe.